This is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American Desert Southwest. Welcome back to True Consequences. Today we're going to be discussing the murders of Cotton and Judy McKnight. On November 15, 1984, Cotton and Judy were found dead in their home in Lincoln County, New Mexico. They were found, executed, and shot in their kitchen. The strange thing about this case is that there were no signs of any kind of break-in. In fact, when the police arrived, they found that the home had been locked and secured. So whoever left them there on the floor of their kitchen seemed to clean up the house and lock up after themselves. So this murder happened 33 years ago. The case is still considered a cold case. And it seems like the investigation from the beginning was riddled with problems. I reached out to a reporter who now lives in Utah, but who did extensive research on this case. His name is Mark, currently works for a newspaper as an editor, and he's asked that we just keep that information at that, so I'm respecting his wishes. I talked to Mark, and you'll hear what he has to say about this case here in a minute. He's uncovered what seems to be a bit of a cover-up, as well as some botched investigations related to this case. Unfortunately, there's never been really any resolution for the family of Cotton and Judy McKnight. If you have any information related to this case, reach out to the Department of Public Safety, Bureau of Cold Case Homicide, Their number is 505-827-9066. So in talking to Mark, it's clear that he definitely has a theory about who is responsible for these murders. There are several times where Mark will name somebody by their full name. I've made the editorial decision to bleep out the last name because, because I felt it was appropriate. If you'd like information about who these people are and, and more information on the case itself, you can go to our Patreon page if you're a supporter. There's a tremendous amount of documents related to this case on our Patreon page. There's also a lot of information on the Justice for Cotton and Judy McKnight page that Mark manages. Let's listen to Mark now talk about the case and how he came upon it and what he found in his investigation. The investigation targeted a state police officer, or at least the sheriff's investigation targeted a police officer with the state police, and then the state police came in and targeted the sheriff's office with all kinds of accusations, and so did the, the attorney in that district, the, the, the 12th district, judicial district attorney at the time, a guy by the name of James Weldon, he too was saying all kinds of things about how bad the sheriff's investigation was, and, and I was even hearing stories from cops who were around at the time that all kinds of malfeasance and, and poor evidence handling and made-up evidence and just all kinds of shit about this Lincoln County Sheriff's Office. Um, you know, story, the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office looked incompetent. And so anyway, I kind of dug into it. I talked to Judy's sister, a woman by the name of Terry Buss. She was still alive at the time. I talked to her, and I did some preliminary reporting, but I was still a very young reporter. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't quite know what I what kind of story I had in front of me. I didn't, just didn't know anything. 
So I never wrote about it at the Roswell Lady Record. I never did get to it. And I left Roswell, moved to another paper, Nexus, the Waco Tribune. You know, I worked there for a while. And then eventually moved out to Nevada and then spent about 12 years working in Nevada. And like I said, I was uh, getting a master's at UNLV and I was trying to figure out a good thesis topic. And I had been doing a bunch of research on the evolution of true crime. And I was looking for this, you know, original case I could do some reporting on that I could include in the thesis. And I thought, I wonder if anybody ever wrote about the McKnight case. And so I started doing some research and sure shit, nobody had ever really, you know, there was a couple of cold case type stories, you know, your typical, hey, 10 years ago this happened, but it was never solved. Uh, and, you know, there was something on the on the uh, attorney general's website about it still being an open case, mm-hmm. if you have any information, and all this other stuff. So I was like, well, damn, I found my car. And so... I started assembling, um, started all around the old cop friends that I knew and see if they're still around, see if they can help me out, see if they point me in the right direction. And I tried to, I called Terry Bussey, Judy's sister. She was still alive at that time. This was about 2011 or 2012. And, uh, oh, and there were two guys who I knew were the guys who found the bodies. And one of them was one of Cotton, Cotton McKnight's best friends. Um, and the other guy was a guy who had known him really well, too, and they found their bodies. So I called them up. And none of these guys would talk to me. None of these, they, they said, they said, we're not going to talk to you until you talk to Charlie Cox. And so I finally tracked down Charlie Cox. It happened to be the undersheriff of the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office at the time of the murder in 1984. Uh, the sheriff at the time had been a guy named Tom Sullivan, who had happened to also be the sheriff when I worked at the Rockville Daily Record. And one of the reasons I never did a story on the McKnight case was I could never get Tom Sullivan on the phone to talk to me about it. And he was the same Tom Sullivan that was there in 84. He was there in 2002. Um... And he would never call me back. And that always made me... So anyway, fast forward to 2012. I tracked down Charlie Cox in Sierra County. And uh, and he just happened to be the interim sheriff at that time of Sierra County. Uh, I guess their sheriff got in trouble for something and had to resign. And the county commissioner appointed Charlie to be the interim sheriff. And I got his number from a county commissioner there and called him up. And he thought it was funny that I was calling and asking about the McKnight case. <laughs> and at first, he, at first, he was really weary of talking to me. I mean, really weary. Like, he wanted to see me in person. He wanted me to fly out there. He wasn't going to share anything with me over the phone. He was extremely uh, cautious. And that piqued my interest, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Very strange to me. Um, And so I made arrangements. I talked to him a few times over the phone to try to allay his fears, and I made arrangements to fly out there and see him. And lo and behold, it turns out that he and his son and a few of his ex-co-workers, deputies in the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office and friends of his, 
had reopened the McKnight case in 2009. Really? Like, on their own. Yeah, privately. They Because here's what happened. Um, and I didn't know all this until I started talking to them about it. I didn't know any of this stuff. This case gets really sideways, and I mean really sideways, like purposely tainted. Uh, it becomes a political mess of epic proportions. Um, you know, uh, where it's state police against the sheriff's office, sheriffs against the district attorney, district attorney against the sheriff. Meanwhile, all these family members are just kind of caught in the middle. Uh, and the case goes sideways. Well, grand jury is formed, uh, and the state police investigates the case, takes over the case, um, and the attorney general's office is put in charge. So it's out of the district, or district attorney's hands. It's out of the Lincoln County Sheriff's hands. It's now in the state police hands. And they go a totally different direction than the sheriff's office. And, uh, and it becomes a real mess. Then... Rumors start floating around that Charlie Cox purposely tainted the case. That Charlie Cox was seeing Judy. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, Charlie Cox, he, he, that was all a lie. It's all a big disinformation. It's a red herring. Yeah. And this involved politics. There was a sheriff's election. Charlie Cox ran for Lincoln County Sheriff in 86 lost by 100 votes or something. Um, and so he left the sheriff's office, and when he left, he took the case file with him. He took the sheriff's office documents, any documents he could find about the McKnight case. He essentially stole them Whoa. from the sheriff's office. He did this as an insurance policy, uh, and so he has all these records, right? Right. And he's kept all these records all these years. And you're talking interview transcripts, police records, uh, police reports, forensic information, letters back and forth between the sheriff's office and the FBI and the attorney general and the governor and the district attorney and the state police, um, crime scene photos, crime scene video, um, you know, detailed lists of the evidence collected, Whoa. detailed list of what the scene looked like, drawings, all, all kinds of shit they interviewed, what the people who they interviewed said. Uh, and he had all of this. And of course, to a reporter, I mean, it's like the mother load. Yeah. I got to see these. I got to see these records. I mean, and at this point, this turns from a potential thesis topic idea to quite possibly a huge story to me. Yeah. I fly to New Mexico at the earliest opportunity. And I meet with Jeff Cox, Starley's son, uh, and Charlie and a guy named Barney Iorio, who was an ex-deputy of the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office. And on the phone while I'm there is a guy by the name of Mike Lee, who was an ex-detective, one of the primary detectives on that case, who did the fingerprint analysis. So I fly out to Albuquerque, yeah, rent a car, drop down the consequences in New Mexico. These guys meet me. We have like a three-hour, four-hour-long interview. And it turns out not only did they had these records, and not only did they reopen this case, but they have gone to the current district attorney, not the guy who's there now, but a woman who was there previous to the current guy, got her interested in prosecuting the case and making new arrests. Uh, they also got another uh, 
attorney in New Mexico interested in helping her. They also went to the attorney general's office. They also went to the governor's office. Uh, and by the time I went there, and they had all these meetings, all these high-ranking people, politicians in New Mexico, trying to convince them to reopen the case, that this case was important, and that they had, they felt like they had the good, and that enough time had gone by that all the political bullshit that happened in the 80s would no longer mean anything. Well, they were stymied. And I mean, they were stymied hardcore. And it all pointed back to the state police, uh, preventing them from uh, doing anything new with the evidence as far as forensics. Uh, the state police just basically wouldn't give up anything. And, uh, and, uh, so I got there, I hear this whole story, and they trust me at that point enough to give me some of the documents. So I start looking at the documents. And sure enough, there's some very interesting things in the documents. And there's one document in particular that to me is the whole key to the McKnight case. To me, it's the, it's the Rosetta Stone. Okay. And it points exactly to who is involved in this case, who's involved in this murder. And it's a guy by the name of Tony who was a Chavez County Sheriff's deputy at the time of the murders, who uh, was a childhood friend of Cotton's, who uh, was friends with uh, Phil Byers, the state police officer that the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office targeted with their investigation. Um, and he happened to be the best friend at the time of the murders with the cop who originally told me about the McKnight case. Whoa. Who, and who originally told me he knew who did it. And it's Tony And when I when you look through the records, other than a few tiny, tiny mentions, Tony is nowhere to be mentioned. And when you look at the state police records, he's altogether absent. Mm. Except for one or two documents out of maybe 3,000 pages of documents. So they totally missed this guy. And in my opinion, they missed him on purpose. Sure, sounds like it. Um, yeah, they missed him on purpose. Conclusion of all this is that there were a lot of dirty cops mm. in that part of New Mexico in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And the fact was that this guy, Tony, threw Phil under the bus. He's the one who first mentioned Phil's name in any of the records. He, he's the one that the Lincoln, none, none of the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office was looking at Phil. At that point. Until he brought it up. This guy, he brought it up. Um, he brought it up. And there's a reason he brought it up. He brought Phil up because either they were involved together or he recognized that he could he could maybe pin this on Phil somehow. Sure. Or it was some sort of signal to other state police officers and investigators that, hey, you try to pin this murder on me or you come after me for this murder and I'll turn you all in. I'll talk about drugs, I'll talk about the money, I'll talk about the corruption, you know, go ahead, feel free, come after me. I think that's what some of this became. And so the more I dug in, the more I started assembling lists of witnesses and people I needed to talk to, and I spent about three years tracking people down uh, and interviewing them. And I taped, I recorded most of my interviews and uh, collected uh, what I believe to be uh, circumstantial evidence in the case. Um, Tony Don't's son told me he, he thinks his father killed these people. 
Tony's ex-wives told me he thinks that Tony killed these people. What was his motivation? Um, I, uh, that's a complicated, very complicated what the actual motive was. Okay. I think, but you know, according to uh, a key witness against Tony, which is the cop that I knew in, um, in Boswell, who was his best friend, both left the country right after the murders and stayed gone. Uh, I mean, they fled the country, dude. And uh, he told me, I think he was a witness to the last encounter that anybody had with him. Um, which was in this Elks Lodge bar uh, in Roswell, literally the day before the murders. I need to apologize about some of the audio quality here. I was trying to conduct this interview over the phone while I was in a rural area of Pennsylvania on vacation. I need to clarify that in this section, Mark is talking about money and drugs potentially being a motive for the murder of Cotton and Judy. I know that wasn't very clear, because the audio cut out, and I apologize for that. Let's continue listening to Mark. Um, I think it's more complicated than that. I feel is involved somehow, and I think this was, I think Tony did the killings until probably cleaned up the scene of the crime and set it up. Because uh, scene is the clean, one of the cleanest crime scenes you've ever seen. Um, I mean, this is a lot of people point to Judy's son probably being involved. His son was this 18-year-old dipshit. He's still a dipshit. <laughs> uh, drug addict. Again, here we have another audio issue. So what Mark is talking about is the fact that the scene seemed to be cleaned by somebody who was a professional, somebody who knew what they needed to do to clean a crime scene. It was so clean, in fact, that it was very suspicious. It continues to be a huge source of suspicion, especially for Mark, as he looked into this case. Let's go back to him. Uh, plus nothing was stolen. You think these 18 drug addicts aren't gonna steal something? You know, there's valuables in the house and none of those were touched. So whoever handled that scene after the murders knew what police would be looking for. Sure. Um, and plus there was a proprietary in the house. Like whoever committed murders uh, turned off the lights, locked the door on the way out, locked the gate on the way out. That shows a proprietary interest. That means that somebody who has an interest in being that place safe. Um, whereas, if there's any normal person, now, I don't know if you know what this ranch is. I mean, I, I, the first time I drove out there to take pictures, I could not find it for the life of me. And I had pretty good directions to it. And I had to stop it. It's a funny story. I had to stop these these good old boys who are out there looking for, I don't know what they're looking for, deer or something. They have these clean dogs in the back of their truck. I stopped them. And I said, hey, guys. And this is out of the middle of nowhere. And I said, hey, guys, I'm trying to find this place where this, this murder happened for Night Ranch or probably a different name. Now, do you know what I'm talking about? You know where I get to it? These guys, are through, their faces went white as ghosts. Mm. I mean, all the color drinks. Faces. And it just so happened that before they pulled up next to me to see if I wanted, they had been talking about the murders. No way. Yeah. Because <laughs> their buddy was saying murders happened around the corner up this hill. And uh, so they, uh, they, they led me right to the place. And they took off, and I stayed there. But listen, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, you shoot two people, and you want to destroy evidence. 
set that house on fire. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody's going to get there before that house is burned to the absolute ground. You don't turn off the lights uh, and lock the doors. and. <laughs> yeah. So one of the big theories was always that it was somebody close to the, the Cotton or Judy. Close to Cotton, really. Cotton was the how Joe McKnight fit all this because Joe McKnight does fit into all this somehow mm-hmm. um, Joe McKnight treated Phil better than he treated Cotton and Judy and Cotton was his own son mm. uh, and that was a fact that's just a fact of the case Cotton was threatening to to sell the ranch out from under his dad because he forced his dad to give him a dummy deed to the ranch and we're talking this ranch was worth more than a million dollars right Joe's still alive? Sierra County, 
And every time he would apply for a job, his resume looked great. They would be on the verge of hiring him. And then somebody from the state police would give a call and say, hey, you know, he's a suspect in those McKnight murders. You get to know Charlie Hobson, talk to him, and really understand what kind of law enforcement officer he was and is. There's no fucking way you're going to convince me that he's a activity whatsoever. Ever. You're never going to convince me. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, as, I mean, as, as, as as late as two thousand like four, five, six, the state police is writing up cold case reports about the McKnight murder and Charlie Cox is still one of their suspects. And it's like that's an obvious sign to me that somebody really looked at this and dug into the material, that there is an ongoing cover up at the state police level. If they're still talking about Charlie Cox and their official records as far up as two thousand five, um that's a huge problem. Yeah. That's a, I mean, they're not looking at this at all with any sort of realistic intention of trying to solve it. Um, I think even a deal was made. I think Tony was told, stay away from New Mexico and, and you know, and we won't have any problem. Um, well, it seems like if they had anything concrete on Charlie, you know, they would have, they would have filed charges on him. Oh, if that was realistic, not even file charges. You know what the yeah. All, that all this is a joke. Yeah, they never even brought him in for questioning. Seriously? When you, if you seriously suspected the man of shooting two people, getting away with it, and being a cop, you'd hold his ass in. They never so questioned him. No, no, not once. What the? F- was he ever questioned by anybody? That's what tells me. That's what has always told me that that was a farce. That he, was a cover story. Yeah. And then the stories about Charles Thompson I heard in two thousand two. That was. Just Information campaign. It was literally, it was information put out by the higher ups in the state police to their underlings in the state police. Their underlings in the state police spread those stories around to various departments, and those stories circulated for the next 25 years. Um, and the state police other things that get it now, and you go, wow, these guys went above and beyond cover this thing. There's signed sworn statements by. Terry Bussey and her husband, Jim Bussey, that when the state police were investigating, reinvestigating the case for the grand jury, it basically told them, it, in terms of state police officer wouldn't have done these murders. So there was no open mind about who was involved in this. Right. Uh, and then there are so many other tangential things that point right to the state police being uh, at the center of a cover-up. Even to the point where when the attorney general's office attempted to do a real job, like a real investigation on this, they were stymied by the state police. Um, the, the, there's, there's evidence, the central evidence in the case is bottles that were on the table. They were bottles, there were like five bottles in a shot glass and a beer can on a kitchen table, and the bodies were underneath the table basically, next to the table. Uh, um, these bottles, looked like they were placed there on purpose. The bottles, the, the liquor, there was like vodka bottle, scotch bottle, a dram bowie bottle, uh, a tequila bottle, and I think one other, like a mint schnapps bottle. And so you can't make a drink, no. a mixed drink with all those, okay? Right. It didn't look like it had been. There weren't any fingerprints on it. There wasn't even any fingerprints on the glasses put up in the counters. In the kitchen, you know, you wash dishes and you put clean dishes up. You're gonna leave your fingerprints on them. 
say somebody spent a lot of time putting this. Staging it. A fingerprint. Yeah, staging it, exactly. Here Mark's talking about the only forensic evidence that was found at the scene, which were fingerprints. The interesting part about the display of alcohol bottles on the table was that none of them really went together. In fact, you wouldn't expect somebody to be making drinks out of the types of alcohol that were just set on the table. Thanks to new technology that had recently come out when the investigation was occurring, the police were able to utilize the help of Texas Tech professors to lift fingerprints off of the paper labels on the bottles. Let's go back to Mark. Well, at, at that very moment that the McKnights were killed, a professor at... at uh, Texas Tech in Lubbock had perfected a laser fingerprinting technique. And there had even been a story in the Albuquerque Journal about it. And so Mike Lee, the guy who took those fingerprints and took photos and dusted the bottles and dusted everything for fingerprints, he had read the story. He took the box to Texas Tech, and that professor got retrievable prints off those bottles. And when Mike they looked at the print, they matched Bill, Bill And one print, 20 years, 30 years later, matched Tony So, um, Holy shit. The police has never, ever retested any of that evidence. In fact, the state police admitted that they lost those bottles in their evidence room for, for, for like 28 years. Just, just gone. Nobody could find them. Sure. Holy shit, man. So not only did they mishandle the evidence, not only did they engage in a disinformation campaign targeting Charlie Cox, uh, not only did they continue this cover-up up until the 2000s, uh, they also sold this bullshit to the local media. Uh, they have a guy out there, he was even an investigative, I don't know, I forgot what his name was, I called him. Um, he, he's an investigative reporter for a TV station up there, and he had done periodic stories. I called him and I asked him, I said, I said, have you ever really looked at this case though? He said, sure I did, sure I did. He said, uh, and I said, do you believe Charlie Cox? He said, no, I don't believe Charlie Cox's story. He said, I, I looked at the records myself. And I said, well, whose records did you look at? And he looked at the state police records. Mm. He never looked at any of Charlie Cox's records, Lincoln County records. Um, and some of them aren't even in the state police records. And I said, well, I think they misinformed you. <laughs> and then you in turn misinformed the public. Um, and so anyway, so I embarked on this thing, not only getting all of Charlie's records that he had, and I have them all, uh, but also getting the state police file, which I had to, I had to do an open records request, but I got all of it. I got the crime scene photos. I got the, I got the, uh, video, which I've never, I haven't put that on Facebook. Right. Um, except for a clip of it, I think. Um, and I got all this and it, you know, the one thing I don't have that I know would prove my theory of the case would, would make it even stronger mm -hmm. are the grand jury records. I think the grand jury records, uh, would seal this up. It would show that that grand jury was manipulated. Now I did talk to a grand juror, told me on the record, and I have it recorded that she felt like that grand jury was totally tainted and that they, when they tried to go in a certain direction, the state police would cut them off at the knees and force them to go a different direction. And I was startled when she told me that. I was stunned yeah. when she told me that. Um, 
And so I attempted to get the grand jury records. I couldn't get them. Now, there's a current district attorney there, and his name is, uh, um, shit, what is his name? I forget his name. I've met with him a couple times. I met with him before he became the attorney, district attorney. And uh, I told everything I had, and I said, listen, this is a real case. This is a real case. And I think one of these people will crack. Either Vicky or Phil or Tony will crack. And he, when he got into office, he took our information. He got the grand jury record. He talked to the state police. He hired an investigator. But nothing has happened. Mm. He has not done any real work at all on it. And so it's getting up. So this is the um, DA for, I, I, for Lincoln County? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he basically used it as political maneuvering when he was seeking office, I think. There were some backers he needed to win that seat. Um, and one of the backers is a woman who uh, was related to Joe McKnight, and she was a magistrate judge. And she would only give her support, I believe, if he would take a hard look at the McKnight case, a real look at the McKnight case. And so he agreed to do that, but nothing has happened. Mm. Nothing has happened. Um, and I realized that that was the risk we were going to take. The fact was that this disinformation campaign that was started in the 80s was so effective that people actually believed that Charlie Cox had some role in these murders, even to this day. And so I wanted to dispel all that before the guy died. Right. You know? And I was hoping we'd get a little bit of... Uh, attention at some point just so that the real story would get out sure or at least a better story than what had been put out sure yeah because what had been put out basically tarnished the reputation of somebody i believe was a a true cop who was headed in the right direction had he left alone i mean i i I was open mind hell One of the more alarming aspects of this case is the fact that Mark said two probable suspects were never questioned. He was shocked that with all the evidence that seemed to be pointing at these two individuals, the police had never even brought them in one time to ask any questions. This is very concerning. I'll let Mark describe this more. These murders are probably going to remain unsolved. Charlie's going to die. Jeff's going to grow old and die. I'm going to grow old and die. And the only thing out there is whatever stuff is that I have that I put out there. Um, you know, even Cotton's own son, Judson, who was 12 years old when his dad was shot and killed, had been so manipulated by his mother over the years that he doesn't even believe it. He doesn't know what to believe. He doesn't know what to believe, who to believe. He won't talk about it. And he, he was purposely put and taken to the crime scene as a way to cover for Joe and Phil's involvement. I mean, it's a sign of guilt, their behavior, the day the bodies were found. Um, for so much circumstance, I mean, I can literally talk about this for hours and point to little bits and pieces and nuances of the case that point in only one direction. Right. Um, and that's the crazy thing. Uh, I've tried to, I've, I've talked to people about the daily record about doing a series of stories. I got, I tried to get a investigative reporter to help if people are interested. Um, you know, and no, nobody wants to really dig into this. You know, first of all, this is an old, 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 old case. 
Right. All these state police officers and sheriff's deputies and sheriffs are gone. Um, state police officers do realize that it would tarnish their reputation if something really ugly was ever really officially put out. Mm-hmm. And so they prefer it just to go away. And how many how many newspaper reporters have five years to work on something? <laughs> Nobody does really. Nobody does. Yeah. Nobody does. I don't. I don't have five years to work on it. That's why I pretty much stopped working on it. Sure. I just got do it anymore. And we got nowhere. We got nowhere. Wow. And and you know and I talked to officials about this. You know, state police lieutenant. Um, I've talked to the. Criminal prosecutor in the AG's office, top woman. She's probably not there anymore. I talked to, and you know, they just hang their head. They know what's up. Yeah. And they know. They know. They know. Yep. You can see it in their eyes. They know that it's a fucked up case. I'd like to thank our latest Patreon supporter, Abby R., who donated at the Roadrunner level, which is $10 or more per month. Thanks, Abby. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to episode three of True Consequences. If you have any information related to the murder of Judy and Cotton McKnight, please reach out to the Bureau of Cold Case Investigations at the state of New Mexico. If you'd like additional information related to this case, you can go to the Justice for Cotton and Judy McKnight Facebook page that Mark manages. You can also go to our Patreon page as well as our website. We will have additional information available there. If you like our show, please rate, review, and subscribe and share. Let people know that you're into this. We would appreciate that very much. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next Monday with a new episode of True Consequences. Stay safe, New Mexico.